All right, Matthew chapter five, starting in verse 38. Follow along with me as I, as I read. You, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who's evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So throughout this section, Jesus uh, has been showing us a righteousness that is greater than the scribes and the Pharisees. And to do so, he's teaching us that true obedience, it goes beyond mere outward obedience. And it goes much deeper into the level of our hearts where, where we love and worship and desire and make choices. So to review an example, back in verse 22, Jesus teaches that in addition to physical murder, being angry in your heart towards someone is also a violation of you shall not murder. Well, this morning in our two passages, King Jesus causes people to demonstrate two more kingdom virtues. So to, to say them in, in brief here, and we'll fill them out as we go, here they are. Kingdom citizens don't need to retaliate when they experience personal grievances, and kingdom citizens are to love and pray for their enemies. As you'll see in your notes, we're gonna use the same outline that Pastor Doug's used throughout this, this section of expose, examine, and explain. All right, two sections to cover. Let's, let's get going. Verses 38 through 42 is the first. Let's reread verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This is a familiar phrase for many of us. This is a, a direct quotation from Torah in three different places. Exodus chapter one, Leviticus chapter 24, and in Deuteronomy chapter 19, and it's known as the law of retaliation. This law was a legal right given to Israel as a nation. It was not designed to be enacted by individuals caught up in personal grievances, but by the courts. However crude this may sound, the reason for this law residing in the courts and not in the personal realm was to keep in check the natural disposition to meet force with greater force. It was meant to eliminate vigilantism, personal blood feuds, intertribal warfare. The, the, the law of retaliation sought peace through justice being meted out in equitable ways. The, the courts were to bring objectivity and thus eliminate subjectivity and partiality. 
Now, sadly, by Jesus' day, through sinful hearts and the assistance of the scribes and the Pharisees, the law was, as D.A. Carson notes, dragged into the personal arena, where it could scarcely foster even rough justice, but only bitterness, vengeance, malice, and hatred. And so Jesus wants to expose theirs and our tendency to sinfully take justice into our own hands. You see, made in the image of God, we all have God's good desire for justice. The problem is that that good desire is often corrupted in our hearts where sin still remains. When we experience injustice or, or what we deem as injustice, we, we can be tempted to take immediate justice into our own hands acting as judge and jury. We're not unfamiliar with the adage, I don't get mad, I get even. Or, or we're not unfamiliar with the idea of they need to know and they need to experience what they put me through. Retaliation is, is the sinful, visceral response to being wronged. It's seen in children who, when pushed, immediately push back. It's seen in teens who, when publicly humiliated, seek revenge through public shaming. It's seen in our marriages when our spouse hurts us and we retaliate with the silent treatment for a day or two. It's seen in traffic. When we get cut off, we lay on the horn, we ride the bumper, and we cut off and return. It's seen in the workplace when someone is unfairly promoted over us and we seek to knock them down a peg or two through gossip. You see, family, Jesus is, is shining a light, shining a light into the darkness of our legalistic, merciless, graceless, tit-for-tat approach with others. You, you and I can, can drag the law of retaliation into our personal relationships. And we can act as our own judge and jury, subjectively determining what's right, often in terms of what's fair. Well, Jesus exposes our weak legalistic approaches towards obedience, and he also examines the internal heart obedience that God's righteousness actually demands. Verse 39, but I say to you, do not resist the one who's evil. And here it is, shockingly, kingdom citizens don't need to retaliate when they experience personal grievances. Jesus doesn't put an end to the law of retaliation. The law is good. It is for equitable justice. And it belongs in the courts and in the judgment of God. But it is not for us to drag into our personal relationships when we've been wronged. Jesus commands non-retaliation. And he gives four brief illustrations to explain what the righteousness that exceeds out of the scribes and the Pharisees looks like. And, and, and spoiler alert, in the end, Jesus is going to show us that we're called to even more than just non-retaliation. 
Now, because of time constraints, just going to highlight two. Second half of verse 39. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. You know, probably safe to say we've all heard this one, turn the other cheek. Right? But to color this in, though, Jewish historians tell us that striking a person on the right cheek suggests a backhanded slap from a typically right-handed person. And in the Jewish culture, I, I think like most ours, it was an intended insult. This slap wasn't merely to harm it was to insult. But Jesus says, lay down your right to return insult for insult. And what's more, be willing to sacrificially take another. And then verse 41, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Again, probably... Safe to say, we've all heard, go the extra mile. And, and even, even in our day and age, that, that is a, a, a virtuous thing. That said, I, I think the, the context of their culture will, will fill this in, and it will become a lot more virtuous. To color this in, Israel was under Roman rule. And as such, a Roman soldier could legally require an Israelite to carry their equipment for one mile. It was not an option. As Sinclair Ferguson points out, the Jews hated this practice because it publicly illustrated the humiliation of being a subjugated people. And it is easy to imagine how open to abuse it was. You see, Jesus says when, you've, when you reach the limit of what the law requires, as a citizen of heaven, lay down your right to stop and put your burden at your oppressor's feet but keep going, serve. In other words, listen, duty from the kingdom of man required the first. Grace from the kingdom of heaven compels the second. Now, with these illustrations, Jesus, he's, he's trying to jolt us into seeing his heavenly kingdom and to live its virtuous life here and now. Two warnings. Two warnings. First, don't, don't read these illustrations seeking to apply them in, in sort of the woodenness that concludes that you must keep giving your clothes and money away, verse 40 and 42, until you stand naked and broke. That's foolishness. Don't do that. Nor does the command to turn the other cheek apply to situations of protecting and caring for others, such as rescuing a child from abuse. Nor does it commend a spouse to take abuse. Second warning. Don't read these and think that you cannot pursue legal justice when it's appropriate and necessary. In Acts 22, Paul pushes back against his illegal, unlawful torture. Jesus pushes back against the high priests for his unrighteous trials. Look, all that to say is I'm just saying we need God's wisdom. We need God's wisdom from his word. We need God's wisdom from his community. We need God's wisdom to apply this principle as it will work itself out differently in various 
situations. Now, did you see it? Jesus calls us to more than just non-retaliation. Listen, the ethos of go the extra mile or let him have your cloak as well in verse 40 means that as citizens of heaven, we not only don't need to retaliate, but what's more, when wronged, we should also respond with surprising mercy and extravagant grace. The question is how? Well, impossible. Apart from the fact that Jesus himself has already demonstrated this for us and did this for us on our behalf and he's empowering us to do the same. In, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 24, we read this. Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit, deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Here, what we just read, this is our merciful and gracious king of justice. When reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he unjustly suffered, he did not threaten. How? He continued entrusting himself to him, God the Father who judges justly. And remarkably, Peter says that he is our example to follow as well. Now, now we, we can't do that by trusting in ourselves or hoping that the, the, the grievances that we're experiencing will end. No, no, we're, we're not going to find the resolve in us or in our circumstances. The, the resolve to follow Jesus is in trusting, just as he did our Heavenly Father, the one who judges justly. What's more, verse 24 says that Jesus died for our sins so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Jesus empowers us to follow in his steps. So to go back to an example from earlier, married folks, the, the next time your spouse wrongs you, instead of responding with the silent treatment, Jesus graciously calls you to lay down your right and risk being wronged Again, in other words, let love mercifully cover their sin. You see, like Jesus, but in far lesser ways, we're called to, as it were, absorb the punishment that is rightly theirs. Jesus calls us to more, though. Beyond non-retaliation, Jesus says we should respond with surprising mercy and extravagant grace. Jesus not only mercifully forgave us, 
Listen, he also graciously drew near to us. You see, the next time your spouse wrongs you, don't just let love cover their sin from a distance, but graciously draw near to them. Bonhoeffer called this visible participation in his cross. We're going to mess this up, though. So thank God that he wasn't fair with us in regard to our sin. What we fairly deserved was his just wrath against our sin. But thanks be to God that we did not deserve, we did not receive what we deserved. We received what we didn't deserve. Forgiveness, reconciliation, adoption. The list of grace goes on and on. Family, there is grace here. There's grace to repent when we blow it. We're going to. There is grace to seek forgiveness from those you've retaliated against, and there's grace to follow Jesus once again. Brothers and sisters, the, the, the gospel will buoy you along when the wrongs against you seemingly demand immediate retaliation. The, the gospel speaks a better word to you and about the person who wronged you. By trusting in God's perfect justice, whether that's accomplished through courts, the cross of Christ, or in the final judgment, as citizens of heaven, we don't need to seek personal justice when we've been wronged. What's more, we can respond with surprising mercy and extravagant grace. The second kingdom virtue that Jesus calls his people to demonstrate is found in verses 43 through 47. Let's uh, reread verse 43. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, the, the ESV, maybe you have the NIV. It's a bit unhelpful here. It actually quotes everything there. Some translations only quote or put in bold, you shall love your neighbor. It, you see, here, here's the thing. Only you shall love your neighbor is an Old Testament quote. It comes from Leviticus 19, 18. Now, Jesus knew this. His audience knew this. Just want to make sure that we know this. So, in other words, hate your enemy? Not from the Old Testament. I mean, at this point, it's probably a formal teaching, clearly an understood position and way of thinking. That's why Jesus puts it under the moniker, you've heard it said. So, how might that have developed well, maybe there was the consideration that based on the context of Leviticus 19, that sort of defining neighbor must have meant uh, only fellow Israelites. Chalk in uh, the Jews' personal history with Gentiles. Think Egypt, Babylon, Assyria. Couple that with remaining sin that, that separates people and there you have, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You know, we, we see this instinct played out in the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? You have the lawyer who kind of pokes back at Jesus in regards to the law of you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
And he asked the question, who's my neighbor? And provocatively, the lawyer gets corrected and instructed that a neighbor is even the person whom you might call your enemy. In the end, hate your enemy, sinful, man-made addition. But lest we think that we are immune to this way of viewing people, Jesus uh, intends to expose our own tendency to do the same. Now, the enemies that Jesus has in mind, they're also described as uh, persecutors in this passage. For many of us, uh, not all, but for many of us, we we have an experienced persecution. Um, Not only in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, just a few verses earlier, we heard persecution in connection with, um, for the sake of righteousness, in Jesus' sake, religious, believing in Jesus. That was the type of persecution. When we read the rest of the New Testament letters, it was persecution for believing in Jesus. It was persecution for righteousness' sake. It was not persecution because you were a jerk. And, but, but most of us probably still haven't experienced the type of persecution that Jesus is talking about. That said, I don't think it's far-fetched to consider that persecution is going to be mounting even for people in the West, here where we are, if we're going to stand fast to this word of God. So in one sense, I think we can take application here and say, let's prepare well by thinking about this passage. That said, there's another way to apply this passage, and it's to think more broadly uh, about the, the enemies that we are to love, and those are of any kind. Now, your instinct might be still to say, well, I, I, don't, I don't have enemies. I, I certainly wouldn't call anybody my enemy. Fair enough. I think most of us are probably in a position where, where we sort of intuitively know, like, it's probably not a great thing. Probably shouldn't call that person an enemy. So we'd say, yeah, I don't have any enemies. But I think we can get clues to who our functional enemies are by thinking of it in this way. how you think about certain people and how you passively or subtly treat certain people. So how you think about them and how you treat them. I think these can kind of poke at who our sort of functional enemies might be. It is still hard for you to see. Let me me poke a little further your functional enemy might be the person whom you diametrically disagree with about a very personal issue. Family, marriage, parenting, schooling. Or it might be the person you disagree with, and not, not like this is a real scenario in our day here, but it, it might be the person who you disagree about with some uh, government policy position. Your functional enemy might be the, the coworker you're bitter towards because they seemingly always get the kudos that are, that are really deservedly yours. It might be that coworker who you always pick up the slack for but never get the credit. Our, our functional enemies can be, they can be our friends, our families, our children, our spouses. No, these, these folks aren't always seen in those ways. That's a good thing. But we're lying if we don't see them at at times in these ways. 
Consider with me, how do you treat one of these folks when they continually interrupt you when you, you are trying to do what you want to do or what you need to do? Friend or foe? How do you think about or treat the friend, family member, child, spouse? How do you treat or think about them in that last conflict? Friend or foe? See, Jesus exposes our own tendency to show partiality, form tribes, determine who's in, who's out. But he also examines the internal heart obedience that God's righteousness actually demands of us. Verse 44, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Is he interpreting the full range of what love your neighbor called for, and in complete antithesis to hate your enemy, King Jesus says kingdom citizens are to love and pray for their enemies. Now we're going to talk about love and prayer just a moment, but we see the internal heart obedience aspect in verse 45. Jesus says, so that you may be sons of your father who's in heaven. John Piper explains, now, some might take Jesus' words to mean that you must first become a person who loves enemies before you can be a child of God. But it may also mean love your enemies and so prove yourself to be what you are, a child of God. That is, show you are a child of God by acting the way your father acts. Or to say it in language that we've been using throughout this series, the, the kingdom virtue of what we've been talking about here, love and prayer, the kingdom virtue of love and prayer isn't obeyed in order to gain access to the kingdom. These virtues are displayed and lived out by those who have already been accepted into the kingdom by virtue of grace through faith in King Jesus alone. Now the love spoken of here is not a feeling, it's an action, it's a command calling citizens of heaven to love continually in tangible ways. While writing from a Georgia prison, Martin Luther King Jr. wrote a sermon based on this text and grappling with questions of why and how Christians are to love their enemies. He wrote, love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. For it has creative and redemptive power. He goes on, love is understanding. It is redemptive goodwill for all men so that you love everybody because God loves them. You refuse to do anything that will defeat an individual because you have love in your soul. And here you come to the point, he concludes, that you love the individual who does the evil deed while hating the deed that the person does. Jesus is commanding his kingdom citizens to display a, a supernatural love that takes hated enemies and makes them neighbors to love through acts of service and kindness. In Romans 14, verses 20 through 21, Paul writes, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Because by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, 
but overcome evil with good. And the gospel compels us to go further. If love wasn't enough, King Jesus calls us to pray for those who persecute us. Praying for our enemies is first, come on, listen. Praying for our enemies is first about changing us before it is about changing them. Praying for our enemies is first about changing us before it is about changing them. Praying for our enemies means asking God to help us to see them not as enemies, but as people made in his image with value, worth, and dignity to be loved. Praying for our enemies and persecutors means praying blessings, not curses. Therefore, most supremely, it means asking God to grant them grace to see their sin as first and foremost against him. And praying for grace for them to repent. And if not already so, praying that they would be saved by trusting in Jesus. It's pleading for God to bring about reconciliation, both vertically and horizontally. Now, in the rest of verses 45 through 47, Jesus provides two reasons, two, two reasons why we are to love and pray for our enemies. Oh, love Jesus. Not just a command, but also wants to reason with us Compel us. Oh. First one, end of verse 45. For God the Father makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. This is what's known as common grace. Common grace is God's grace that does not have to do with salvation. This is not the grace that saves. Common grace is God's Grace that is indiscriminately given to all people, both evil and good. So, so what is this common grace that is indiscriminately given? It includes things like, our text says, sunshine and rain. It includes things like prosperity, health. Bob mentioned earlier, doctors, medicine. It, it is natural capacities and giftings. It is, it is sin being restrained from having complete dominion and so on and so forth. Oh, our Heavenly Father shows a measure of his love each day toward all people to include his enemies through his common grace. And so here's the argument. As kingdom citizens, we are to indiscriminately love and pray for others to include our enemies because our Heavenly Father shows love in his common grace to all both citizens and enemies of his kingdom, like father, like child. Second reason we're to love and pray for our enemies is found in verses 46 through 47. Jesus argues, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? 
Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Jonathan Pennington, commentator, has penetrating insight here when he writes this with a deeply ironic twist. Jesus pushes his enemies, the Pharisees, to see that their righteousness is on the level of those whom they deem to be the least righteous, the Gentiles and the tax collectors. Here's the argument. If you love only those who love you, if you greet only your friends, no better than the unbelieving world. This is, this is powerful from, from John Stott. He says, the simple word more is the crux of what Jesus is saying. It is not enough for Christians to resemble non-Christians. Our calling is to outstrip them in virtue. Family, where, where's your bar of virtue at? How, how, how low is your bar of virtue? Does your bar outstrip the, the, the non-believers that you know? Would, would people that know you agree with your assessment? So what does it look like to love a person whom you vehemently disagree with on COVID-related issues? Or on how to see a current justice issue of the day or on some political issue? To use verses 46 and uh, 47 as clues, I'd say it's at minimum not dodging them, but pursuing them and warmly welcoming them. It's when you see or hear that they have a need and you eagerly, eagerly comfort, provide, and serve them. question at this point again is how and the answer again is it's impossible it's impossible apart from the fact that not only does Jesus display this for us as one to follow but he did this exact thing for us on our behalf and now empowers us to do the same Romans 5:10 says while we while you and me, while we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. 1 John 4.10 says, this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the wrath-absorbing propitiation for our sins. And in Luke 23, 34, while hanging on the cross where his enemies belonged, Jesus prays for them saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Clearly Jesus modeled loving and praying for his enemies, but family, the precious news of the gospel is that Jesus loved and died 
and prayed for us while we were still his enemies. God's love turned enemies into friends. And what's more, not only did Jesus model this for us, not only did he do this on our behalf, but now the very one, that very one, through the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit, is enabling us to do the same. Well, we're not going to do this perfectly, but there is grace from King Jesus to repent when we hate our enemies, grace to seek forgiveness from them, and grace from the king to pursue this enemy-loving, praying-for virtue of the kingdom of heaven once again. What is virtuous in the kingdom of heaven is weakness in the kingdom of man. The virtues of heaven are upside down and counterintuitive. The the virtuous life of heaven is, is, is shocking and offensive to the kingdom of man. But family, if we're gonna be salt and light, as Jesus talked to us earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, and we can't settle for pharisaical righteousness. There's nothing compelling about that. It's not pleasing to Jesus. But by God's grace, we've got to outstrip everyone in virtue. This section of the Sermon on the Mount started with verse 20. And it said, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then in verse 48, Jesus says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now you'd be mistaken to, to think that these virtues are to be lived out in order to earn entrance into the kingdom or to obtain God's favor. No, these, these virtues are lived out by those who are already in the kingdom and accepted by the king by virtue of grace through faith in King Jesus alone. Now these are his citizens who are living this out empowered by his grace to do so. Listen, the righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees is most certainly King Jesus' perfect righteousness. But King Jesus' righteousness is also manifested here and now in imperfect ways through his kingdom citizens that he empowers. And so family, Jesus is calling us to the virtuous life of the kingdom of heaven. There's empowering grace to do this. Let's do this together. We'll let our light shine before others so that they may see our good works and give glory to our Father in heaven. Let's pray. God, we thank you, your kindness for the Sermon on the Mount being preserved for these particular passages. This is grace from King Jesus to his people. To to know what he's calling us to and to know that there's grace to do this. You've not left us. Oh, sweet and precious promises to be with us to the end of the age. You will be empowering us to live this virtuous life. Oh, let us not forget. Now, let's not leave here unchanged. 
Help us to live in the, in the good of what you're calling us to. It's not graceless. It's filled with your empowering grace. Help us to do this together. We're not to strike out on our own, but you have kindly given us a community to live in, to be encouraged, and to be rebuked, and to be spurred on to love and good works. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.